I'll be reading Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God, God's will is, his, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you all again. And uh, really, really appreciate the singing this morning and uh, praising, uh, praising our Lord together. Wonderful. Um, so uh, we did make it home and we did make it back. So that's a good thing. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, we had a couple of speed bumps in the road, but God is, as God always is, uh, faithful and works through circumstances to get us where we need to be. And so all glory and praise be to him. A fascinating thing happened on the plane uh, on the way back. It was just intriguing, nothing, nothing earth-shattering, but um, I, I finished some work, and I was just kind of, kind of tired from the, the weekend. Uh, it was on the way back, and, uh, and so I pulled up a football game on my computer, and I had it sitting on my little tray table there, you know, on the, on the plane. And so uh, because of getting on the early flight to get back and take care of our vehicle issues, Delene was actually sitting behind me. And so she kind of got tickled because she said, you had like eight guys on the plane watching the football game. So it was, everybody was kind of looking over your shoulder and kind of focusing on your screen. And, and so I kind of got to thinking, I was like, you know, what if, what if our lives were like that, right? What if our lives were like that, that as we, as people of God, um, were, were doing something in such a way that people were so intrigued that they, they kind of want to look over our shoulder, they kind of want to peek into what's happening and, and, and see what the outcome is going to be and, and possibly maybe even, even join in to uh, our part of the story that we are experiencing as we live into God's story, right? So I want to share something with you this morning. Uh, a very dear friend of mine, uh, Tim Woodruff, um, shared these thoughts with me a couple of years ago, and I want to start with some of these thoughts because it just really stirred my own heart and thinking about what God was doing. And in particular, particularly as we think about Ephesians chapter 4 and how Paul opens that chapter. If you've been with us the last couple of Sundays, you know that in those opening chapters of Ephesians, Paul takes some time to, to talk about who we are in Christ and uh, what it means to be adopted into the family of, of God and that we're all in this together through what Christ Jesus has done. And because of that, he uses this really powerful word in chapter 4, this word called therefore, because of everything that I've said in these first opening chapters, uh, now here's how I want you to respond. Here's how I want you to live that out behaviorally in a community of faith. And, um, but as we open up this chapter, he talks about this one particular word, and it's this word called calling. Uh, live into the, the call, live into your calling. And and that's a word we don't use a whole lot, but just think about it. Think about it with me for just a moment in the great landscape of history of God's people. You know, I think about Noah. You know, Noah was just kind of minding his own business, you know. Um, we don't know a lot about his backstory. Maybe he had a, a really nice garden in the backyard. We know that he had some, some sons and some daughters-in-law, and so his family was growing and 
I'm not really sure how Noah spent his time on weekends. Was he a, was he a grill burger kind of guy? I, I don't really know, you know. I, but God kind of steps into Noah's life and he says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. Noah's like, God, I can do that. Nice little two-seater canoe, you know. Man. Wife's name stenciled on the side. God says, no, I want, a, I want a boat that's 450 feet long that's going to save all of humanity. And it's going to take 100 years of your life. So God works through Noah. Noah has no idea, really, about what God is expecting of him or asking of him. Um, but he answers the call of God. And all history has changed. Think about Moses. He's minding his own business when the call of God comes into his life. He's a shepherd in the hill country of Midian. Some folks would say, well, that's not much of a life, maybe, but it's quiet, steady, predictable work, right? Here comes the call of God to Moses, surprising him, discomforting him, replacing his personal agenda with God's agenda. Lead my people, Moses, out of slavery into the promised land. I'm going to show you how to do that. Forge a path for them, Moses. Give them a law by which they are to live. Moses had no idea what he was getting into. When God spoke to him from the burning bush, this call would require the next 40 years of Moses' life and every ounce of energy and wisdom and patience that he had. And at the coming of God's call, none of Moses' plans for himself and his life and his future mattered. All that mattered, God's plans and God's purposes. Think about Amos. He's just minding his own business. The call of God comes into his life. Amos had a, had a life. When the call of God came to him, he says, I was neither a prophet nor was I a son of a prophet. I was a shepherd. I took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending that flock and he sent me. Go prophesy to my people, Israel. Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. So Amos was living this quiet, peaceful life. He was caring for sheep. He was pruning fig trees. Yet here came the call of God into Amos's life, and it was massively disruptive, endlessly disturbing, hugely demanding. It put Amos on center stage. It required him to confront the leaders of Israel, obligating him to say some really, really hard things, some unwelcome things to a people who didn't want to hear it. But it didn't really matter what Amos wanted to do with his life, whether that was the future that Amos envisioned for himself, for he is now called prophet of God. Ruth, she was minding her own business when the call of God came into her life. She was dreaming possibly of building a nursery with her husband, and that gave way to writing an obituary for her husband. She left her home. She was abandoned by her sister-in-law, clinging to her mother-in-law. 
She steps into a strange land, knowing no one, facing a very uncertain future. But ultimately, she becomes the great-grandfather of King David, through whose lineage comes the king of the world, Jesus. So Ruth's plans gave way to God's plans. And because she said yes to those plans hundreds of years ago, we can say yes to God's perfect plan today. Apostle Paul is just minding his own business when the call of God comes into his life. Paul had a life when this call came on him. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was living the life that God had prepared for him. Tracking down this sect of the crucified Messiah, stamping out those troublemakers who dared to defy God's will. Yet here comes the call of God into Paul's life. Knocks him to his knees. Knocks him out of his comfort. Knocks him out of his certainty. Everything is turned upside down. Right became wrong. Crucified criminals become A crucified criminal becomes the savior of the world. Heretics are transformed into faithful followers. The call of God came into Paul's life, and from that moment on, on that Damascus road, Jesus said, you will be told what you must do. And indeed he was. And Paul's life was never the same again. In our heritage, we don't talk much about a a theology of calling. The idea that at any moment God can step into our lives and interrupt our status quo and he can call us to something greater, higher, uh, more noble. It's not really an idea that we typically entertain. I think we believe generally in the call of God on our lives. We recognize that God has called everyone to salvation, right? And he wants all people to have eternal life. We may be mindful of passages like 1 Timothy 6, 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. We don't mind the idea that God calls everyone to holiness and to righteous living, as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. But it's the notion that God calls people specifically individually, at particular times, for particular purposes that we sometimes find difficult. It's not necessarily how we think about God dealing with us. It's not the way we talk about how God moves in and through our lives. And in spite of the fact that this is exactly how God interacts with people throughout the witness of Scripture. In spite of the truth that this is precisely what the Bible teaches about the way God has always worked and continues to work. Calling, personal calling. It's not an idea that we easily embrace, but it seems to be one that's pretty consistent in God's Word. So this this lack of a theology of calling can lead to what I call stinking thinking. Are you familiar with that phrase? Stinking thinking. About what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't expect God to put burning bushes in our lives. We don't expect God to interrupt us with the unexpected, the unexplainable. 
and uh, this typically disruptive call. We don't anticipate God may have other plans for us beyond our own plans. We rarely seem to consider that God might value his purposes and his agenda for the fate of the world more than our personal purposes and agenda for an afternoon or a week or a month or year or decade. We rarely consider that God might want to use us in pursuit of his purposes. And that to put um, us to use for his purposes, our purposes and plans for ourselves might have to be set aside. We've come to believe that as Christians, largely, we've come to believe as Christians that we are in control of our lives, that we determine our involvement in God's work, that we decide the level and the nature of our participation, that we volunteer as much or as little of ourselves to the kingdom as we want. We actually think many times that we have the right as Christians to arrange our lives around personal agendas and personal priorities rather than a responsibility to yield ourselves to God's agenda and to God's priorities. We don't want God to interrupt us. We don't like it when God's business takes precedent over our own. We've convinced ourselves that we can resist the call of God, refuse the call of God, without any substantive change in our relationship with God, that we can tell God no without penalty or consequence. That our agreement to the call is more important than the call itself, not only in our minds, but also in God's mind. And because we lack a theology of calling, we've actually gotten ourselves to the point that with a clear conscience, we can kind of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and boldly say, God, I will follow you anywhere I want to go. Right? So, brothers and sisters, this is why we have to immerse ourselves in Scripture. And not not to prove how right we are, but to become who God calls us to be. And I mean that individually and collectively. So over the past three Sundays, we've reviewed again and again how much we are loved. We've read how great the grace of God is. And and now Paul turns his attention to how we're going to respond to that amazing grace. Grace that flows out of God's cosmic power 
So this morning, I want to examine a few verses in chapter 4. We don't have time to preach through the entire chapter, but let's start in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of, and here's the phrase, the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. Do you hear the plea? Do everything you can to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended. To the lower earthly regions, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Again, this is just reaffirming language about the cosmic power of Jesus who is the Christ. He is over all. Seen forces and unseen forces. Christ is Lord of all. And there's so much going on here. There is no way that we can preach through the richness of all of this text today. But there is this overarching theme that begins here with verse 1 in chapter 4. And it is clearly that the call of God still happens. It happened and it still happens. In the life of every believer, if I'm understanding Paul correctly, I have a call of God on my life. You have a call of God on your life. It doesn't make any difference if you're a teenager, if you're a wife, if you're a father, if you're a lawyer, if you're a a teacher, a beggar. There are burning bushes in your lives, not just the general and the generic call, which, yes, surely that's true, and all of us experience that, the call to be saved, the call to live a holy life, but a specific call to a specific word for which you have been specifically gifted. God has given every single one of us something unique and something special to contribute. So what does Paul mean by this word? What does he mean by this phrase, calling? Marcus Barth provides some insights, I think, and I appreciate what he writes in the Anchor Bible Commentary when he notes, in the Pauline letters, the instrument of the call is the gospel, but the call is more than an offer. It goes out in the power of God and is effective. Because of it, man is placed in a new relationship and on new ground. You remember a couple of weeks ago when I told you don't forget your history and don't forget your geography? Okay, this complements what we talked about a few Sundays back. The call does not end as does an alarm, but sounds continuously. It determines the present life and requires worthy conduct. While it overcomes past conditions, it also opens and prepares for a specific future. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and I, I, I hope that you'll agree, agree with me. 
don't we all want to be significant to a certain degree? Don't you want to be known? Don't you want to be loved? Don't you want to live a life that that matters? Isn't this somewhat intrinsic to all humanity? You know, we, we, we pour ourselves into things that we hope will provide some sense of significance. We pour ourselves into work, into projects, into relationships, sports, hobbies. And, and I don't want you to get me wrong. I think these things can all be a means to a gospel end for believers. But if we derive meaning or try to derive meaning from what we have or what we do versus who we are in Christ, you see the difference? See, I think the nutritionists have it right here. You've heard this phrase before, you are what you eat. You've heard that phrase before? Well, that applies spiritually too, right? We are what we eat, spiritually speaking. It's the call of God, and only the call of God, that can bestow a true sense of significance on us because it is the call of God. That's why we are made. It's the call of God that fills the void in our lives. To evade the call is to frustrate God's purposes in your life. To evade the call is to lean the ladder of your life against the wrong wall. Climb as hard as you want. Climb as high as you want, but when you reach the top, still not satisfying. Um, Ultimately, turns to ashes. For an immediate application in this interim season, we are searching for the person God will call to be your next preaching minister. You're not looking for the person with the best resume. You're not looking for the person with the best speaking ability. You're looking for the person God has been preparing for this church at this time. Someone who is heard and will respond to the call of God. Someone who feels the hand of God on his shoulder. Someone whom God possibly has knocked out of personal dreams and personal ambitions and is required to adopt a higher and greater and nobler set of dreams, God-sized dreams. Someone who's willing to say no to himself so he can say yes to God. And, And church, shouldn't that really describe all of us who confess Jesus Christ as Lord? I think once we understand that we are called, then we can begin to discern the uniqueness of our calling, individually and collectively. And I think Paul shows us now how that plays out, because he introduces this language of calling, and then he starts to showcase, okay, here's what I mean by that. And I want you to notice what he says, beginning in verse 11. For Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, some translations say shepherds, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you hear the uniqueness of the calling language? Of how you individually have been gifted? And how when we bring all of those gifts together, something amazing, something supernatural happens. Because it is an outside force that is acting upon us to fulfill the plans and purposes of God. So a few key truths here that I just want us to examine this morning. First one is this. Jesus equips leaders whose primary purpose is to equip others for service. Many, many years ago, churches of all different types, I think, made a tactical error. And that tactical error was we hired ministers to do for us, to serve on our behalf, to take care of others for us. I think that was a mistake because we as the body of Christ are called to live into that space. You are called to take care of one another. You are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Although it's perfectly fine to have ministry staff that help organize us and help move the vision forward, I think it's a mistake for us to think, well, that's your job, preacher, to do those things that God has equipped all of us to do. Christ gives some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. To do what? What's the purpose? To equip his people. Who are his people? The church, (laughs) right? For works of service. The purpose of this equipping is to build up the body of Christ. And the last part of verse 12, so that this is why Jesus did this. This is why he gave these individuals, these leadership talents and these gifts and these skills so that when you're serving the body of Christ, the church may be built up. But this building up isn't just for the sake of building up. There's some very specific outcomes that result from being built up in Christ. And that is, we see in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Until we, what's a word we might be able to use here, a phrase we can use here? Until we grow up, right? Until we grow up and we're mature in Jesus. There's some more specific outcomes that are identified here. I just want you to see this. Unity in the faith. Unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Becoming mature. Attaining the the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you see these outcomes of why Jesus equips those? So that those he equips can serve. So that those who serve accomplishes these things. In the body of Christ. And when we realize these outcomes, I think there is an individual change that begins to take place. As I begin to have my aha moment, oh Lord, I understand. You have gifted me uniquely to help the church achieve these desired outcomes. And then I understand there's no jealousy in the body of Christ. 
If a brother or a sister has a greater gift than I in a particular area, praise God for that gifting. There's a complementary dynamic that is now in play that we together, we collectively, are fulfilling the very desired outcomes of Jesus himself. You see, that's, that's being grown up. That's not being tossed back and forth by whatever trends or whims or waves come along, right? We're not going to be deceived when someone who maybe is uh, outside or someone who is, uh, has a more nefarious intention comes in and tries to derail us from our mission because we understand the mission of Jesus. When you think about these individual collective outcomes, we're not going to be infants anymore. Not going to be like, like babies in the, in the immature sense. We're not going to be tossed back and forth by these waves. Not going to be blown here and there. We're going to be led by the Spirit. We're not going to be led by the flesh. A key truth of Scripture that we see here is, is that we move from childishness to childlikeness. We're fully dependent on Jesus, but we're also fully mature in Jesus. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? The text says, speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What happens if certain parts say, yeah, I don't want to work? The body can't function as Christ designed it to function, right? Paul asserts, we are no longer infants. And when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, in their particular context, there were certain challenges that they were facing. As we read this text today and the truths of this text today, there are certain waters that we are swimming in as a culture that are impacting um, how, we, how we put this into practice. We're no longer infants. But i got to tell you, in our current cultural context, that's a hard sell. That we are no longer infants. We live in a time when many people just react without processing. We live in a time where it's very difficult for people to survey the landscape. We live in a time when we, we act without contemplating how that acting impacts ourselves and others. There seems to be this phenomenon of feeling our way through and picking up the pieces afterward or just simply walking away if things don't go how we want them to. And I want you to consider one of the greatest narratives that we fight against today, the narrative of individualism. I can be who I want to be no matter how anybody else is affected by my choices. Now, this is a very popular refrain. Very popular refrain. Anybody see The Greatest Showman a couple of years back? Remember this chorus? Look out, because here I come. Remember that? I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. It became a, 
a clarion call for many people in our culture. Yeah, I'll, I'll be whatever I want to be. I'll be whoever I want to be. It doesn't make any difference how it impacts anybody else. Jesus does gift us individually. But in Christ, it is not for the glory of the individual. It's for the sake of the kingdom. For the beauty of the church. Think about the difference between being childish and being childlike. Childish is about getting and keeping what's mine. Childlike is about sharing with others. Childish is putting the blame on others. Childlike is about taking responsibilities for my actions. Childish is throwing a tantrum when I don't get my way. Childlike is learning that we're all in this together. Childish is laughing at somebody else's expense. Childlike is rejoicing with those who rejoice. And I can go on and on and on, right? When I was a teenager, I learned a very, very valuable lesson. I worked in a grocery store uh, throughout high school from my freshman year to my senior year. And one day, we decided it would be really fun to do cart racing in the store. Now, you've seen these carts that they put stock on, right, in the local grocery store, and you wheel the carts out, and you put the stuff on the shelves. Well, we decided we were going to race back to the stock room, and um, I don't remember what was on the other guy's cart, but on my cart was a big, full uh, pallet of soy sauce. And I took a corner way too fast, and that soy sauce hit the ground, and it shattered into multiple pieces, and there was a puddle of soy sauce It was unbelievable. What we didn't know was our boss was watching us. We didn't know that. So he came over and he said, and this will stick with me till the day I die. He said, you boys need to, and can you guess what words he used? Grow up. You boys need to grow up. And you know what? He was exactly right. He was exactly right. I think as Christians, when we read passages like Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, we begin to gain some insight into how powerful childlikeness can be in contrast with childishness. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul writes, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts this morning. First of all, I want to encourage you to go back and read this chapter over and over again. Think about how you have been uniquely gifted. What are your, what are your passions? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? As you think about your involvement here at the Mesa Church of Christ, what gifts do you bring to this body that can be exercised and used for the glory of God? Some of the ways that you can begin to get some clarity on that is to pray for your elders and to pray for your ministers every single day. 
because they are in the spiritual discernment business. They want to partner with you and help you fulfill that equipping that Christ Jesus desires for you. And I would say if you're lacking some clarity on, I just don't know how I can serve or I don't know where I can plug in. I'm I'm, I'm asking you to schedule a conversation with your shepherds. Schedule a conversation um, with Joel or with Edison or any of the ministry leaders who are volunteering in this church and say, hey, I want to help. I'm just not sure how. You know, God will work that out. If you'll show the willing, he'll show the way. Okay? Partner with your elders. Partner with your ministry staff leaders in serving others. That is why you are equipped. According to what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 4. You are equipped for service in the name of Jesus. As you do this, you will begin to build up the body of Christ. When this happens in churches that I've worked with in the past, there is, there is, a, there is an excitement that begins to, to build, but it's not a manufactured excitement. It's not a worldly metric kind of excitement. It's, it's maybe an energy is a better word because the Holy Spirit is moving. The Holy Spirit is active in the body. And that begins to attract people to Jesus and the work that Jesus Christ is doing supernaturally through his body. I encourage you to embrace the outcomes of unity in the faith and knowledge in Jesus. I want to ask you just one question as we prepare to close this morning. Do we agree on everything? Okay, here's a little secret I'm going to let you in on. I don't get along with myself half the time, okay? I want you to know that. I don't get along with me half the time. There are going to be things in which we differ, but there is a goal. There is a horizon. There are desired outcomes out there that we will be one in Christ Jesus. That, in my opinion, is worth hanging in there together for. And I want to encourage you, church, embrace childlikeness, not childishness. And I think as we do these things, as we stay engaged in the Scripture and we're people of prayer and we're people of conversation and we're people of partnership, I think we're going to see something emerge here at the Mesa Church of Christ. It's just going to be a a blessing uh, on that which those who have preached in this pulpit and served in your eldership and taught you, they've already laid the great foundation. It's just going to be a matter of building on that and and. When your new minister gets here, <laughs> I, I, I actually want him to walk in going, wow, wow, this is the people that gets it. And um, matter of fact, when he says that, I'm going to stand up one of these days and say, told you, <laughs> right, told you that would happen if you just trust, trust, live into the teachings of Ephesians 4. Hey, we're going to share a song together this morning. And as we sing this song, we, we do this for a very specific reason. It's an opportunity for you to, to, if you need to, come before the entire church body and express something that's on your heart, a desire to be baptized, possibly prayer uh, for a situation that you may be in or, or help with struggles that you may be facing. You can also just turn to the person sitting right beside you, by the way. You don't have to actually come down in front of the church. And you could just say, hey, would you, would you pray for me? this morning or could we schedule a follow-up this week so we can get together and talk about some things that are on my heart it's just a time it's a time to praise God 
but it's also a time to encourage one another. And let's do that now. Let's stand together as a church and let's sing together.